Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, April 17th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers, Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So, uh, the Comic-Con lottery happened... And and we lost, as with almost every lottery. We, we, we did not get a hotel room close enough to San Diego Comic-Con. So as of this second, it looks like we're not covering Comic-Con unless we can find a place, which is why I'm putting this plea out there. If anybody has an extra hotel room that's close to the convention center, uh, you know, DM me or write me an email, peter at com. We would really love to be able to do our work and cover the convention. I think you just send somebody else this year. Brad, you're going. Oh, that's what you think. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just have you sleep in the Hall H line. <laughs> I just, it, in a way, it's kind of sad that we've gotten to this point that Comic-Con, which used to be fun for most of us, is now just a chore. <laughs> It's st- there is still fun there, and Marvel's going to probably be there this year, and maybe Star Wars. There might actually be some good stuff to cover. Maybe, yeah. <sighs> and sorry to everybody out there who hasn't gone to Comic-Con, and it's still a bucket list item for them, and they only dream of going. I know it sounds like horseshit for us to complain about it, but holy shit, is it exhausting. Yeah. That's me. I haven't gone yet, and I actually still want to go. I haven't yet been um, I've been jaded yeah. over the process. Hey, I think you'll have fun. I, I think because I... Thing about Comic Con for me is that <clears throat> covering it, working it is a pain in the butt because you, ha- you have to jump through so many hoops and wait in so many lines to guarantee you need to, you are where you need to be to do your job. But actually being there and exploring the show floor and using your free time to find things you want to find, it's still a blast. But being there in a, in a professional capacity is just a, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. They offer you no handholding. Okay, let's get into it. Let's start the water cooler proper and let's talk about what we've been doing. Uh, this past week, I went to Universal Studios Hollywood to see the new Dark Arts at Hogwarts light show. 
Uh, they have been doing this projection mapping late show on Hogwarts Castle since uh, it is, I think, since last summer. Um, I think Universal Studios Hollywood is only open nighttime hours during the summer, I think. Um, and uh, it, w- it was very impressive back then. And this new one focuses on the dark arts and is is more impressive. It has fire effects and at the end it has this really cool uh, use of drones. Uh, I, I am so excited for theme parks to start using drones in their, like, you know, uh, their fireworks spectaculars. Like, in this, an actual Patronus, like, forms in the night sky and, like, turns Ooh. its head. Yeah, I know, HTA. When I was watching this, I was like, HTA would be flipping out right now. <laughs> I would. I saw your Instagram stories, and I was very, very jealous. Yeah, I'm going to – I videotaped it, and I'm going to write up a post sometime this week. It will be on the site, and you can you can watch the show if you if you can't get there from afar. But uh, I, I recommend it. It's it's worth checking out and worth uh, sticking around in that park, which is it's kind of a half-day park is what, what I think Jacob would call it. But it's worth sticking around until the nighttime to, to check that out. Um, and that's what I've been doing. Brad, what have you been doing? Uh, so as we uh, have discussed on here a couple times, I went to Star Wars Celebration. Uh, this was my first time going to Star Wars Celebration, so it was a unique experience for me. Uh, it's also the first time I've covered an event like this where I haven't really had the rest of the regular team around, you know, like Comic-Con or Sundance or something like that. Um, and it was uh, it was really fun. It was um, definitely stressful at times, and there was lots of running around and going back and forth. But thankfully, my hotel was connected to uh, the convention center, which was at McCormick Place in Chicago. Um, so it wasn't too too difficult, especially when the uh, the big snowstorm came in on uh, <laughs> on <laughs> Sunday and stopped some people from getting back home that day. Uh, yeah, I saw tons of, of press and, and publicity and people working at Disney that were, like, unable to get home or were getting on, like, you know, delayed flights. Yeah, it was a surprising uh, weather um, system that came kind of came out of nowhere, and it was just, like, uh, not super heavy snow, but just constantly blowing and freezing and, and cold. So it was just a, just a junky situation. Um, but Star Wars Celebration itself was really fun. Um, I will say that it was a little bit smaller than I expected, and I think that's just because I'm so used to Comic-Con being such a big thing that's full of all these, you know, different fandoms, whereas Star Wars Celebration is obviously just Star Wars, so there's only so much they can do, but uh, they had tons of cool stuff on display, uh, lots of cool things to do. My favorite part was probably just the fact that there were vendors who were selling nothing but Star Wars stuff, <laughs> uh, so I just would just walk around and just pick up random things that... Uh, I had either never seen before or thought were cool at the time, and just like, oh, I'm just gonna buy this now. And so, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely fun. What what's the coolest purchase you made at Celebration? Um, I was glad to pick up a Rise of Skywalker shirt that they were selling in the Celebration exclusive store. Uh, they started selling them uh, in the shop, like the, I think it was the day after the Episode Nine panel, maybe two days after. Um, but I I found it only by happenstance because originally I wasn't gonna go back into the store. Because I'd already been in there, but I, I just felt like an inkling that I should go check and see if there was anything else. And sure enough, I stumbled upon that shirt. Um, so that was cool. And then I also happened to find a um, Art of Return of the Jedi book, which was was released back around the time that the movie came out. Uh, so it was just a, just a cool random find. And it has the uh, shooting script inside of it and also a bunch of cool concept art from the movie. So that, that was a fun find. Very cool. 
I bought a lot of stuff from afar. You got me a Return of the Jedi Japanese t-shirt. I got uh, these Hallmark ornaments for, like, uh, they're the R2-D2 and C-3PO droids, but in the Ralph McQuarrie concept art style because I have this uh, during Christmas time. I have a whole tree devoted to droids because I'm insane. And because I'm also even more insane, I paid $40 on eBay for a Coca-Cola t-shirt and Arabesh that was given out for free at the convention. So that happened. Um, Ben, while Brad was celebrating Star Wars in a convention center, where were you? I was in the woods in uh, in Southern California. I visited uh, Sequoia National Park for the first time, which is about three, three and a half hours north of Los Angeles. Um, my in-laws came in and my wife and I went up there and we like rented an Airbnb for the weekend and uh, just sort of explored that area. It's something that my in-laws had wanted to do. And I, you know, I'd never been there before and I'd never seen huge sequoia trees before. So, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. We, we got to see the General Sherman tree, which is the largest tree in the world, the, the largest living organism in the world, actually. Does that mean it's um, the tallest? No, there are some that are taller. And I think there might even be some that are like older and uh, wider. It's yeah, maybe it's, it's the largest tree in the world by volume. So it's like, it's 2200 years old. It's 275 feet tall. And it has like 52,000 cubic feet of, of like mass or whatever. It's, it's very, very impressive to, to behold in person. Um, And then we saw some pictographs that were made by this native American tribe at a place called hospital rock, um, I, I put a, a bunch of pictures on my Instagram account, so you can check that out at Ben Pears if you want to see what all the stuff looks like. But um, yeah, it was it was a really nice time. Are you going to do a video of this trip, or is that only for big vacations? <sighs> That's mostly for the big ones. I don't think we have enough to to actually put together any sort of slick highlight reel from this one. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, you've been reading a bunch of things this week. Uh, yeah, I had some free time this week, so I uh, I burned through some books. I'm trying to read more books lately. Um, the first thing I read is is called The Last Stone by Mark Bowden. He wrote um, Killing Pablo and Black Hawk Down. He, he primarily writes about, you know, uh, current events or true stories. And this is, um, I think, his first, like, true crime thing. He doesn't really usually do true crime, but this is, might be his first... And um, it, it's about this. Uh, in 1975, there were these two girls. They were sisters, and they disappeared from this mall near Washington D.C. Uh, and they were never found. And sli- um, soon after their disappearance, this guy went to the police and said he had info on what happened. And they gave him a lie detector test, and it turns out he failed the test. And after he failed it, he was like, "All right, I was making this all up." Um, you know, jump to 2013. This same guy is in prison for something else. And uh, the case has gone cold. They never found the girls. And um, this new cop gets assigned to the case. And while he's pouring over this guy's statement, he finds out that this guy actually has info that was never released to the public. So even though he failed that lie detector test, there is a chance he actually knows what really happened. So uh, almost the whole book is like this month, uh, not like year long interrogation of this guy where they just keep talking to him and they keep grilling him. And this guy keeps changing his story every time they talk to him. But every time he changes it, they get closer and closer 
to what really happened. It's, it was really incredible. I burned through it in like two days. It, it was, it's really, uh, it moves really fast. Cause it's mostly like dialogue. It's mostly what this guy said in the interrogations. And, uh, Mark Putin is really sort of like clipped pro style where he doesn't really he only gives you what you need. He doesn't like, you know, get very, uh, flowery with his prose. So it's really, uh, engrossing and really easy to read. This sounds like something that could be adapted into like a one season miniseries on like a you know Netflix or something. Yeah, when I was reading it, I was like, I wouldn't be surprised because it, it, I think it just came out this year. So when I was reading it, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if Netflix turns this into some sort of documentary very quickly. Yeah, I looked it up. There's nobody that's acquired the rights quite yet, or it's not announced. Uh, what what else have you been reading? Uh, and then I, I read this book called The Filmmaker's Eye, Learning and Breaking the Rules of Cinematic Composition by uh, Gustavo Mercado. Um, this book is great. It's, it's you know, you know, it's it's written for fil- people who want to be filmmakers. But I would say even if you just want to study film or, you know, write about film like we do, it, this is a must read because it just it, it breaks down uh, shot composition in every conceivable way that you can think of and you know it breaks down what directors you know quote unquote you know good directors intend with certain shots and you know why certain shots work so well and it's it's a really good give us an example of like what is breaking the rules uh breaking the rules well what what he'll do is he'll he'll set up you know the way a a shot is supposed to be you know like a a close-up or an extreme close-up or an over-the-shoulder shot and then breaking the rules he'll show you know filmmakers who take those shots and do uh, you know they're still doing the basic um uh setup of the shot but they're doing it in a way that other people don't do you know or the you know something that's typically not blurry will be blurry in this shot or uh, something that's supposed to be, you know, all encompassing in the frame will actually only focus on one specific thing. And, um, and, and I'm assuming know. they're doing it not to break the rules, but for some dramatic storytelling reason. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I doubt, you know, none of them are like, I'm going to break the rules. It's more like <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're, they see things in a different way and they, they present it in a, a uh, different way while still using the traditional uh, language of film. So this is a really good book. It's, you know, it's got illustrations in it that show what he's talking about. And it's, it's not too academic because I have some, I have a lot of books on film and filmmaking and some of them, you know, tend to be way too academic, you know, not to make myself sound like an idiot, but when I, when I I start reading something that's written in that academic style, my brain instantly just shuts down and this is not written that way. So it's like I said, if you're interested at all in just studying film, I would recommend picking this up. Very cool. And I'm sure we can find that on Amazon. Uh, yes, it is available on Amazon. Okay. Jacob, you've been trying to read a book every week this year. And you have failing, not been successful. Failing very badly. Um, <laughs> however, I, I am uh, just getting started on Best Movie Year Ever by Brian Raftery. And this is a series of essays about the year 1999, and the film was released that year. And it's been argued by many people that 1999 is the best year in cinematic history. And to give Steve an idea of some of the movies featured in this book, uh, The Blair Witch Project, uh, Office Space, The Matrix, um, The Insider, Boys Don't Cry, Magnolia, The Sixth Sense, 
the Iron Giant, Star Wars Episode One, Election, Rushmore, The Virgin Suicides, Fight Club, Being John Malkovich, Three Kings, uh, American Beauty, an entire essay that ties together Varsity Blues, She's All That, Cruel Intentions, Ten Things Hate About You, and American Pie. It's not necessarily a scholarly piece of work like Chris was discussing, but it's a each essay is a combination of uh, making of each movie, you know, quotes from the people involved, anecdotes from the set, um, retrospective on how it, you know, how how everyone about it feels now, plus you know some critical commentary and criticism from um, Raftery himself. And the art, and it's a really interesting book because it's not each essay is not like here's a here's a masterpiece. Each essay is here's why 1999 was a remarkable, interesting year for film, even the film itself, you know, like Star Wars Episode One. It's not, you know, a, a universally acclaimed movie. It ties into the fabric of what 1999 meant as, as a year for cinema. And it's really fun each, each so far. I've only read a few chapters in. And each chapter is, you know, 10 pages or so. So it's not going to... It's a good bite-sized read. A good thing to carry around, you know, for a, a bus trip. Or if you just need to step away for a few minutes and need something to read. Something to carry around with you. And I, I was reading it while I ate a meal yesterday. It was, that, it was that kind of thing. You read a chapter while you eat a burger or something. I, 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 really I have a question. You you yeah. know a lot about these films. Like, are you learning anything from this? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's stuff that's familiar, but a great deal of the story, especially from the people involved, uh, feels newly researched. So it all feels fresh. And having all these films in one place, on, in one tome, feels like a necessary, you know, guidebook. So even if I did know all this, I'm glad this book exists because... You know, for years, people have, you know, anecdotally discussed this as the best year for, for film ever. And I think this book existing kind of puts a period on the sentence. I, I'm really happy this thing exists and I'm happy that's good. Well, very cool. That's something you could also find, I think, probably on Amazon.com. Yeah, it uh, just you, came out. So it's brand new. Do you know uh, Brian Rafferty? I, I think he writes for Wired and maybe Vulture. I think I've seen his name around. So, uh, you know, he's around our universe. Um, okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. I know this past Sunday, almost all of us on this podcast watched Game of Thrones, the season premiere. I actually watched it, guys. Um, but I'm not going to talk about it because I'm not the Game of Thrones fan here. Uh, I guess, Jacob, let's start with you. Well, Ben and I wrote a very long uh, joint review of the first episode titled Winterfell. And overall, it really feels like a first episode of a season of Game of Thrones in that it's a lot of moving pieces across the board. It's a lot of setting things up, a lot of putting people in positions. But there's a finality to it that's very satisfying. Like characters who've been separated for years and meeting up. Characters who have been hurting each other from a distance are falling in the same room. And there's a lot of conversations that um, are from a long time coming. And for the first time since maybe the very first episode of the series, there's only two locations pretty much in the entire uh, episodes Winterfell and King's Landing and it feels like how each previous season of Game of Thrones but the first four episodes moving everything into place this episode seems to do all that in one hour which is very satisfying to see it move at such a speed so we'll see how things wrap up but um, seeing everyone in one place with the exception of a few outliers proved to be very fruitful and very exciting and Ben I think you mostly agree with that I do yeah and I, there were some uh, moments throughout that I thought were um, sort of bungled like there's a there's I'm, actually I'm not even going to say just because uh, I don't want to spoil anything for people who may be saving it for some reason to watch later this week or if you haven't been able to get to it yet but and Jacob did such a good job of talking about it in, in broad terms but um, yeah I, I largely agree with that I think 
I'm sort of coming to terms with the fact that the show is a way different show than it is now. So I'm not quite as bothered by some of the stuff that I was bothered by last year. Um, but there are still moments that uh, scream crowd pleasing moments that to me are just, they feel a little forced and not too crowd pleasing. But that being said, there's so many other great moments and, and like genuine awesome character stuff that uh that totally makes up for that for me but brad i'm, I'm interested what did you think about this because you have you've seen the show but you haven't been like as vocal about your game of thrones uh fandom as the rest of us what do you think wait wait a second guys i i need to, to break in here yes i just got invited to the media preview for galaxy's edge Oh wow! Oh, wow! Congratulations! Oh, I I am so happy right now. Okay, I, go on. I'm sorry. Like th- th- this this to me is like I didn't think I was going to get invited. So I'm I'm so ecstatic. Okay, okay uh, Brad, what came early? Yes, Brad. Just FYI, Peter, when you go, if they're going to let you buy stuff, I'm going to send you money because I'm going to need things from that shop after seeing all the cool stuff they displayed at Star Wars Celebration. Yes, for sure. Okay, so Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not, I wouldn't call myself a huge Game of Thrones fan. I, I like to watch the show, but I'm definitely much more of a casual fan. I don't, uh, I didn't, haven't gotten obsessed with the show as I did with something like Westworld or Lost. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't collect things from the show, but I, I enjoy it. It's a very good show. It's fun to watch. Um, and I, I mostly agree with what Jacob said is that this, this was very much a, a kind of a formulaic season premiere in that it's, it's set up a lot of what's to come and got characters in place to create the the drama and the tension uh, and this this big epic battle that's to come. So in that way, it wasn't necessarily the most exciting, even though it was cool to see some of these characters uh, interact with each other for the first time and, and actually meet and uh, reconcile some things and deal with some problems. Um, but otherwise, I, I thought it was a fine premiere. I, I wasn't floored by it or anything like that, but I do, I do like having the show back, and I'm very interested to see how it goes. I, I also will say I couldn't help but la- laugh Pretty much every time they cut to Bran just sitting there staring in, in his in his wheelchair, so it, it was <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing. Yeah, I feel like within minutes of the end of the episode, without spoiling anything, that last uh, silent exchange between Bran and another character, someone had put the Kirby enthusiasm theme music over it, and it just fit perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, watching this from the outside, as someone who watched the first few seasons and uh, hasn't really watched this show, you know, on a regular basis since, it seems like just like not a lot happened. Like usually in these Game of Thrones episodes, I feel like it's a lot of us going around to the different locations and having these long conversations. And then in the last 10 minutes, shit gets real and action goes down. But there wasn't that in this episode. I, I think, Jacob, you said that, right? Or you were kind of yeah. hinting at that. Yeah, I mean, because so much of this episode was paying off relationships. I mean, I, I I don't blame you for thinking nothing happened because literally every single scene in this episode is paying off threads that have been like lingering for years and years and years, but only if you've been, only if you've, like, been steadfastly watching the show. And I think you're just getting all this out of the way because, from what I understand, episode three, I believe, of the season is going to be a hour and a half long battle sequence. So I think you're just getting everybody at one place so you can kill half them in, in two hours. So we'll see. Okay, uh, enough Game of Thrones. You, I will link in the show notes uh, the review that both uh, you, uh, Jacob and Ben, worked on together, and people can dive in there. And HD, you're just out, right? Like you're you're not even gonna watch the season. 
I'm out. Although I have watched a couple of clips of um, the my favorite characters like Sansa and Arya because I still have a, a affection for them. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm no longer really into this series. Um, but I if that's all old news. I'm sure you guys all know. Yeah, it's it's fine. By the way, one thing that was cool that happened is uh, I, I watched the premiere from my hotel at Star Wars Celebration, and I was up on the 19th floor. So I could see across, uh, like the city, some some of the high-rise apartment complexes nearby that have like big open windows who are watching TV, and from a distance you could see that a bunch of them were tuned into Game of Thrones because you could see that the, all that the images were like in sync. So that was just kind of a cool thing to see, like just how big of a, a phenomenon Game of Thrones is. Yeah, it's a phenomenon. Um, I mean, I'll talk about later and what we've been eating. I ate some Game of Thrones food, but uh, that, that's just a bit of a tease. Um, I know some of us have been watching some other HBO shows. Uh, I caught the first few episodes of the new season of Barry. I loved the first season. This is uh, Bill Hader's show where he plays a hitman, kind of, uh, I guess, he's becoming an actor. Or he's undercover as an actor. Jacob, how do you even explain this? Uh, a guy with a job he hates discovers his passion and keeps getting pulled back into the yeah. one thing he's good at, which is murdering people. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, I I don't think I'm enjoying this as much as the, the first season, but it is still enjoyable. The first couple episodes are directed by Hero, uh, the guy that did um, Atlanta and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I, I am enjoying it. I'm still with it. Uh, I, I, I do love uh, NoHo and, uh, you know, everybody involved here. But I feel like it, it does feel like it's uh, grinding its gears a little bit. Jacob, am I wrong? I disagree. I think I may like this season more than the first one, at least so far. Because uh, the first one uh, started off very funny, and it ended up sort of toward in the back half of the season finding a new tone where it would fluctuate between tragedy and comedy at a moment's notice in a way where the same way that breaking bad was the was, was an incredibly was a intense drama with hilarious moments this is a hilarious comedy with incredibly intense moments and i feel like they've um doubled down this tone for this season without spoiling things for people who are behind in the show i don't think chris has caught up yet uh this season is delving into barry's past and his origin story of sorts in uh, afghanistan as a soldier and there's a scene where he we flash back to Afghanistan and we see his uh, his first confirmed kill, where um, ner- this nervous, quiet guy murders people effectively on the battlefield, and all of his fellow soldiers like cheer him on and are so proud of him and like treat it like it's the greatest moment of, of his life. And, and it's, it's such a tragic, horrible moment in an otherwise really funny comedy because you realize this guy found his calling um, at doing something that you know is unacceptable in any other walk of life. And it's one thing, the one thing he's good at and the one thing that earned him the applause and the accolades that he wants out of acting is something that he, that involves murdering people like literally. And that stuff has been just so heart shaking and heart rattling to me. And it's been continuing that thread throughout the season so far. And of course, uh, Anthony Kerrigan's NoHo Hank, who's a supporting character in season one is just a gem. He, every time the show gets too dark, he pops up and he makes me laugh just by showing up. I, I am on board completely with the season so far. What about you, Ben? Uh, I am really enjoying what, I, I don't know. I'm, I, it's, I guess it's been a while since I've seen season one, but I think I'm right there with you. I think I might like this season a little bit more because now that the, the table has been set, you can really dive into the characters a little bit more. Um, there's a, a mystery that is, 
unresolved still from the end of uh, the first season. And that is, it feels like a big thing, but the show is treating it appropriately. Like it's treating its characters as, um, you know, for me, there's nothing worse than a show that sort of, um, that treats its characters as either way too smart or way too dumb than those characters should be. And for me, Barry just feels so dialed in on who these people are and exactly the right level of intelligence and like wit and humor and charm and, and like uh, detective ability and all of that stuff too. So it just feels like everything is happening perfectly as opposed to, you know, compare it to Game of Thrones where like there are some highs and lows throughout the episode where I'm like, ah, I'm not sure if I buy that as a moment from this character. Um, Barry always feels totally consistent to me. But uh, what do you think about season two, HT? So I've actually only watched the first episode of season two so far, but I am enjoying it. And I agree too with the, the sort of darker tone that picks up immediately uh, with the first se- first episode. Um, I don't know if I completely agree with you on the character um uh, arcs of these of all or the character writing rather um, I think that Barry is, himself is like incredibly uh, flawed and complex but I feel like a lot of the supporting characters often resort to being archetypes in some way I remember being somewhat disappointed in Sally's um, arc in season one and I was I'm kind of hoping to see more of her in season two but again I'm not as far as you guys yet so I'm not sure but I'm enjoying it a lot i still i love noho hank so much anthony kerrigan is still it's just like the he's amazing the mvp yeah of this show so um uh, and um bill Hader too is also great he's so good at playing a bad actor and um he, <laughs> that sounds I like love, a, that sounds like an insult <laughs> but no he's um he's so good in this show and um yeah i'm, I'm excited to get deeper into season two Am I crazy for thinking that um, the work Bill Hader is doing here is as good as anything in Breaking Bad, but it's a comedy, so it probably won't get as much attention? Oh, no, you're not wrong at all. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think this is I, – I also think this is the role that he's been meant to play. Like, I recently subscribed to the Criterion channel, which I haven't really watched much of it, but I've been watching – they have, like, these interviews with uh, filmmakers and actors about, like, their favorite films, and watching his and him describe all these – films that he's interested in and influence him, which are not like any of the stuff that he normally is anything like what the projects he normally does. This seems most in his like wheelhouse of what he actually loves. And this feels like the thing that he's been working his way to actually get, you know, to be in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I guess the most important question now is Chris, are you going to get caught up? Uh, I, yeah, I want to, I, I, I think I only have like three episodes left in the first season and I just sort of just fell out of watching it, but sooner I do, I do when I catch up. I just, I never have the time one day, one day I'll have free time and I will catch up. Chris, you're reading books. You could be watching. Barry. <laughs> you read two books. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, uh, because Star Wars Celebration is going on and they had the episode nine teaser trailer, which we've talked on the podcast probably two episodes at this point about, I was excited to go back and rewatch Star Wars The Force Awakens and Star Wars The Last Jedi. I have watched those movies many times, but surprisingly, I've never watched them back to back, like, you know, in, in, in home viewing. 
Um, so I, I I was watching these basically. Honestly, I started watching this because I saw that spaceship that I talked about in yesterday's episode, and I wanted to make sure it looked like that spaceship from the teaser trailer. And I wrote a whole theory about that. You can listen to the podcast episode yesterday, and you can also find the theory on the site. Um, so that was my intention going in, but we just kept on going. And um, I don't want to be the negative one on this podcast. Uh, and I know everybody here loves Last Jedi. And I love Last Jedi. Uh, but I do have some problems with it. And uh, one of them that made made even more glaring when watching it back to back is the moment where Ray hands Luke the lightsaber and he comically tosses the saber behind him. Uh, in, in the beginning of Last Jedi, watching that moment after seeing the dramatic moment of Rey arriving in Octu and like her reaching out and she's like almost cr- about to cry and uh, handed to her like I feel like and I tweeted about this actually it was interesting a bunch of people in the industry responded to my tweets while I was live tweeting about this and like Paul Shear and Leslie Headland um, many different opinions Brad you responded. Um, they, uh, but I, I think what I got down to is I, I don't mind. I'm not one of these Star Wars fanatics who doesn't like what they did with Luke in the Last Jedi. I, uh, I totally get the him not uh, accepting the call. I, I totally, I, I totally agree that the best thing you can do with that character is have him like not want to help Ray. Like that is makes the most sense in every sense of the word but i think what what i don't like is treating that throw of the lightsaber as a comedic moment like and it it totally kills uh any drama that was there like there's a way to throw the lightsaber in anger there's a way to like drop it and like not like there's a way to do it and it not be a moment when i saw it in the theater every single time almost all the, the entire theater laughed and i guess maybe you'd consider that a success but it i don't know as a star wars fan that moment is the one big thing that i do not like in the last jedi um but yeah okay anyways i i i know i'm bringing everybody down uh hd you also revisited the last jedi yeah, I uh, was a little dejected after some of the revelations from Star Wars um, uh, Rise, of Sky- Rise of Skywalker trailer, which I've come around to a little bit more, I will say. But I was uh, wanting to revisit The Last Jedi because I loved it so much, and I actually hadn't seen it since I had watched it a couple times in theaters. So um, it was kind of like seeing it with new eyes, and I came to appreciate it um, a lot more, even the parts with um, uh, Canto Bite, uh, which I remember in the theaters – feeling like it was a little bit clunky. I felt like watching it again, it was much more, because I expected it, it was much more seamless into in transitioning into that story. And um, while there are some parts that could have been trimmed, I really, I really enjoy The Last Jedi and all that, all that it does for the franchise and all that it does as a story about like, the hubris of um, of legends and, um, and the fall of the hero and that kind of thing. And um, I will say that I think that Mark Hamill just gives one of the best performances of his career in this movie and watching it again reminded me of that and I was just very sad that that kind of got lost in all of the conversations around Last Jedi because he's just so good in this role. 
Yeah, I definitely agree there. Uh, from one fallen hero to another, let's talk about Dark Side of the, Ri- the Ring. This is a new series on Viceland. It's directed by Jason Eisner. He's the guy that did Hobo with a Shotgun and Treevenge, uh, one of my favorite short films of the holiday season. Um, and he is a huge pro wrestling fan. I used to be a huge pro wrestling fan. I used to run a wrestling website called uh, WrestleNet and I went under the name The Slammer and uh, I followed wrestling kind of in the attitude era of the WWE um, back then WWF and uh, this series, this new series is a documentary series. Each episode uh, takes a look at some kind of dark um, tragic events that happened in the the world of pro wrestling uh the one that i was immediately drawn to because i didn't really i don't know it, it, it was uh there was an episode th- there's two episodes out right now um or as of last night and the one i watched was match made uh, first was match made in heaven this is the story of randy macho man savage who if you don't watch wrestling you might know as the slim jim guy that used to yell snap into it um he this is about his relationship with uh, Miss Elizabeth. It was his; he, she was his wife, and also his manager in the ring. And thing, it's kind of uh, telling the story from the people involved. It has a lot of the people involved, like interviews with Eric Bischoff, who ran WCW, Scott Hall, who played Razor Ramon, Jake the Snake Roberts. Uh, Hulk Hogan is not in it, but Hulk Hogan's ex-wife is, which is kind of strange. But I guess she was friends with Elizabeth. And uh, it kind of tells the story of this this relationship that kind of went sour and ended with, um, you know, not murders or anything, but like some some deaths of uh, interesting nature, I, I will say. Um, so it, it's kind of a tragic story. It's worth seeing. I think more people are going to click on that than the other episode I watched, which was. Uh, an episode about Bruiser Brody. This is a guy that never quite made it to like huge stardom. Uh, Mick Foley kind of emulated his career on him. And Mick Foley actually narrates this episode. And uh, I didn't really know much about this because Brody, uh, he died as a result of a stabbing in a dressing room before a wrestling match out of the country. And what happened in in that room is been the subject of controversy for decades. This is almost like a true crime like story. This is a it's very shocking and tragic. There's injustice. It's uh it's almost maybe deserving of a feature documentary because whoever stabbed him, well, it, it seems clear in this in this uh, episode, um d- did not get any jail time or anything at all. And it, just the cover up is insane. So I I highly recommend you watch this. I know the next episode, which comes out tonight takes a look at uh brett the hitman Hart, who uh had an interesting story of being like he was leaving the wwe for wcw and he basically got screwed in the ring in a in an in event that you know wrestling is planned and scripted but sometimes what happens in the ring is not and uh basically he had the title he was going to be leaving to wcw he had the title he wanted to give it up the next day on a monday night raw and uh the the you know, Vince McMahon, who runs WWE at the time, thought that it was important that he lose it in the ring, and it was something they dis- disagreed upon. So he was supposed the, the match at the uh, Survivor Series was supposed to end with a disqualification or, so- or some you know whatever where he wasn't going to lose, but actually he got screwed out of the title live on TV. And by screwed, I mean like they 
orchestrated a series of events that made it look like he gave up on a submission move that he didn't give up on. And it's it's a very uh, interesting – it's probably one of the most interesting shoot events in the history of pro wrestling. And I have not watched that episode yet, but knowing that that is coming out tonight, I pulled up Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows. This is a documentary that came out many years ago, and they were following – Bret the Hitman Hart during these events, and they got unprecedented access to behind the scenes of WWE. So you actually get to see like what it's like to plan a wrestling match and stuff from backstage, like what actually happens. And the, interestingly enough, in this documentary, they they are around for that 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 night, and they capture everything from behind the scenes to like in the ring. And it's it, it's it, I thought you know maybe this documentary is not good. like maybe I love this documentary you know. A decade and a half ago because I was a wrestling fan. Um, but no, I showed this to my girlfriend Kitra and she was, you know, at first she was on her phone, but like 10 minutes in, she was like riveted and totally into it. Uh, Jacob, have you ever seen this? No, I'm familiar with the uh, overall story of all this because as someone who does not watch wrestling but finds wrestling fascinating, I know the busy details, but I'm going to watch this tonight probably. Yeah, watch uh, watch the episode that's tonight on um Viceland, but also that documentary, I was looking for it. I was like, it's not on iTunes. It's not anywhere. It turns out the the director of the documentary has put it up on his YouTube channel for free. So if you want to watch Hitman Heart, Wrestling with Shadows, which I would highly recommend. I'm sure the episode of of um, Jason's show, uh, Dark Side of the Ring, is going to be as compelling. But it's not going to have all this footage. So I would, I would highly recommend anybody check that out. And lastly... I want to say I watched The Legend of Cocaine Island. This is a, a what is it? It's a, I guess a documentary that uh, you guys talked about last week. It's You can find it on Netflix. And um, it's, uh, I liked, you know, I really liked it. I'm glad that you guys recommended it to me. I like how it's such a non-typical style of a documentary. I, I agree with you. It does feel like a Coen Brothers film, but like in real life. And the, the characters are wacky and larger than life characters that I feel like, if you made a feature film about them, it would be unbelievable. It would be, like, too over the top. Um, the characters are so insane that even in the credits at the end of the movie, the credits assure you that they were actually real people. Um, the one thing I, I'm not sure if I was on board with with this documentary is it has these dramatic reenactments that are well shot. Probably too much, too well shot, and it seems... Like the filmmaker almost wanted to make a narrative feature film based on these events, but instead made a documentary, and it didn't feel like he was, you know, choosing a lane. Um, did did either of you feel that when watching this? I, I I know last week I talked about how I think it runs a fine line between making fun of the subjects with the way it's shot, but for the most part, I, I enjoyed the reenactments and I liked seeing reenactments with the actual subjects placed in them. I thought it was a very interesting choice that really dramatized you know how absurd the situation is by shooting it like a very serious crime movie but having the actual events and people look very atypical for the genre but do you agree chris yeah i, I didn't have a problem with the the reenactments i do agree that uh, it it comes very close to going uh, too far with them but i, I kind of liked it i i really liked that they got the i forget the guy's name but the, the main guy to play himself in the reenactments i thought that was a nice touch, so I didn't mind them. Okay, uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? I guess I'm the only one I'm still watching Veep around these parts because it's Game of Thrones, Barry, and Veep on HBO on Sunday nights, and this is the final season of Veep. Uh, 
And it's very strange to watch this show and remember what it used to be because Veep, in response to the Trump administration, has decided to go full cartoon because it was once, you know, sort of a, a vicious satire of Washington politics, you know, can no longer live up to what's happening in real life. So the final season has gone full Looney Tunes. It's a cartoon at this point. And it's incredibly funny. The, the dialogue is just so cruel and mean and, and scathing and funny. And it still has the best insults of any show on TV. Like just people, things people say the show make my toes curl disgust by how funny they are. If anybody said anything, anything like this to me in real life, they'd probably break down and cry. That's how mean the show is. Uh, but whereas the first seasons, maybe the first, you know, four seasons felt like took place in something resembling reality. It's, they've gotten increasingly over the top to the point where it's just all but a cartoon and a very, very funny cartoon. The one that I, I enjoy a great deal. I just, I'm glad it's coming to an end because I'm glad it, it's ending on a funny note because I feel like it maybe it's, it's the gas tank is running empty. The, the light is on. I'm, I'm curious. Did anybody else here watch Veep? Is anybody else given up on it or am I alone here? I watched it for what season is on? Is it on now? Six, this is seven, seven. I watched it for the first five seasons, and um, I really love this show. Um, I used to work at a political news magazine when I was living in D.C., and um, I remember talking to people there, and they said that Veep is probably the closest approximation to real life Washington politics, just because it really gets to the core of how everyone just is kind of stumbling along, and it's all a matter of people not really knowing what to do and just um, miscommunicating and stuff. And so Veep, surprisingly, is very accurate in terms of depicting that. Um, But as it went on and like after the election, I remember watching it and being like, this is a show that like doesn't really bring me joy anymore because the real life that the satiring is just so much more ludicrous than anything the show could come up with. And that's why I just kind of fell off watching it, even though I enjoyed it as much. It just felt like it's time, I guess, was unfortunately passed. Yeah. And there's a, there's a character on the show. I'm not going to say I think it's people are behind or want spoilers who is the show has spent six seasons making him the worst human being on earth. And in season seven, he's running for president. He's clearly meant to be in an, a, an amalgamation of Trump and Bernie Sanders at the same time. And it is, Insane to watch. Yeah, talk about talking about Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> and watching him. And the show is desperately trying to make him, you know, more ludicrous than Trump. But everything he does makes you think, just think, oh, no, this is not as bad as Donald Trump is every single day. So the show is, even though it's at its most ridiculous, it has still reminded me depressingly of how awful things are in the real world. But yeah, Veep yeah. is still, it's still, still a very funny show. And HG, I think that maybe when the dust is cleared, uh, it, it may be worth at least finishing up because if, if you're on board for that long, I think you'll get some joy out of these last two seasons. Yeah, I think once um we've gone far enough from this current time period and I can just like divorce that from my head, then I would be happy to revisit it. It's just like it just reminds me too much of today. Yeah, that's the same reason why I haven't watched the last season. Well, one of the reasons I haven't watched the last <laughs> season of House of Cards. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I get that totally. Uh, but speaking of politics in movies, uh, I, wa- I I guess to help wash Veep out of my mouth because it, it, it left me so depressed, even though it made me laugh. I watched Lincoln again, Steven Spielberg's uh, film from, I guess, four, five, six years ago now. And um, I know at the time Lincoln was well received, was a box office hit, you know, one was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, one best actor for Daniel Day Lewis. But I still think we undervalue it because revisiting it, and this is a movie I can 
Oh, it's streaming on Netflix, by the way. So you have no excuses. You haven't seen Lincoln yet. This movie is a blast. I mean, for a seemingly stodgy two and a half hour long biopic about Abraham Lincoln, following one month of his life in uh, the second uh, year of his uh, second term of his administration, this movie is such a joy. Daniel Day Lewis is incredible. His, his his work here is maybe my favorite performance of his, and that's saying a lot. I mean, I've read a lot about Abraham Lincoln. It's like I think I have a great interest in personal, you know, in, in American history, and take it very personally. And everything on here is so on point as a movie about history. And what I love about this is that it does not say, "Oh, men were better back then," or "Lincoln was above politics," because this is ultimately a movie about a man portrayed as a saint by you know by history textbooks sometimes getting down and dirty in American politics and doing the right thing by manipulating the system and breaking the rules and bending the law so he can make the right thing happen. It, it, the whole idea of good men trying to force the right thing through a broken political system, it's not a new thing. It's not its not new to Veep or new to any other political show. It happened in the 1860s. It happened in ancient Greece with the first democracies. And I think that the real beauty of Lincoln and Spielberg, who's who's, who's still an optimist at the core of his films in his, old, in his older age, has taken, I feel like, the wisdom of his years to realize that, hey, good men are the people who realize that sometimes you have to work within a bad system to make good things happen, even though it involves compromising when necessary to make sure you do the right thing at the end of the day. Spielberg expert. Um, am I right about Lincoln? Is it one of his best movies? Absolutely. Lincoln yes. is uh, fantastic. It, it, um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like in the last few years, there's, it's gotten this weird reputation for being not one of his best, but I really do think it's, I think the only thing that keeps it, for being a complete masterpiece is I don't think it needs the uh, spoiler alert. I don't think it needs the tacked on ending where it shows, you know, Lincoln dying because I think there's a shot where he's walking down the hallway of the white house in silhouette. And that's really should have been the ending, but Spielberg always has a problem with endings. But beyond that, this is um, so good. And uh, I'm a big uh, Lincoln nerd. I read a lot of books about Lincoln. I've read a lot of books about Lincoln. And, you know, obviously it's impossible to ever say this performance completely captures Abraham Lincoln because, you know, none of us are ever going to actually see what he was really like. But based on all the books I've read, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's performance is really as close to historically accurate as you could possibly be and uh i love it i'm i i promise everyone who gives a shit i am continuing my my spielberg series and i will get to lincoln eventually uh i know hgs i'm gonna say i heard her pipe in but real quick i'm gonna drop this into the show notes and i want you to read it if you haven't chris there's a uh, atlantic article from 2005 called lincoln's great depression which um uses sources from the time to explore um the now accepted probable fact that Lincoln suffered from extreme uh, clinical depression and it ended up fueling most of the decisions he made, including uh, many of his choices as president. And if you're a fan of history or want to humanize political figures who, you know, just turned into, you know, marble statues, it is an incredible read and something that I found very valuable as somebody who has depression myself. And Chris, I, I, sorry, again, I was going to say, I definitely read that, but there's actually a whole book about this called, oh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't know it was a book. It's called Lincoln's Melancholy, so um, I would recommend you read that as well if you haven't, because it's 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 it it is based on that same premise. So right. well, let's check the show out. notes now. Um, um, and so, but HT, enough about Lincoln's uh, depression. How is Lincoln the movie? 
Oh, well, I don't really have much to add beyond what you guys have so eloquently said. Um, I think the brilliance of Lincoln is that it eschews the usual biopic route and just focuses on one very specific, very small uh, period of time. And um, in doing that, it allows us just to home in on um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, who's just and just he's just so good in the role that you know it it kind of just takes over the movie at some points, but it is a really great, really great Spielberg movie. Okay, Chris, what have you been watching this week? Uh, you guys ever hear this movie called Mad Max Fury Road? It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I, uh, as I've said a few times on the show, I got a 4K TV for uh, last Christmas, so I've been slowly trying to replay certain movies I own already with their, you know, their 4K counterpoints. And I thought like, oh, this will be the perfect movie, Mad Max Fury Road. And it really was. I think of all the the 4K movies I've watched since getting this TV, this one looks the best. It just looks 10 times more vibrant and alive and amazing than it does on, you know, the regular Blu-ray. And, you know, I'm not going to go too long on this because at this point everyone knows this movie is, you know, a, a masterpiece. And, um, but it, it's, it's still, you know, even after seeing Fury Road multiple times, it still amazes me that this movie even exists just because it's, you know, it's a studio picture, but it's just insane. It's an insane movie that the stunts are, you know, crazy to the point where you, you don't understand how George Miller did them without, you know, actually killing people. And I, I think it sucks that George Miller hasn't made a movie since this, like, you know, in a sane world, he would have been making tons of films uh, after this came out. But as of now, he has yet to do anything. And I hope, you know, you know, he's getting up there in age. So I hope sooner or later he comes back and does something, whatever it may be. Yeah. And you also subscribe to the Criterion channel? Yes, when I actually signed up like months ago when they first announced it, and now you know the Criterion Channel is live. So I've been trying because one of the problems I, I made with Filmstruck was I just assumed it would always be there, so I was just constantly adding stuff to my queue and never getting around to watching it. So now that the Criterion Channel is here, I'm making an effort to at least watch like one or two things on the channel a week. You know, just before before it's too late, in case that goes away too. So uh, they uploaded a bunch of uh, noir films, and so one I watched was Detour. This is a film from 1945. Uh, first of all, it's only 68 minutes long, so God bless the olden days when you could get away with movies being that short, unlike today. Um, and this movie, it's really simple, and it's almost comical in how simple it is and how um, – it actually it feels like a Coen Brothers movie before the Coen Brothers existed. So it's about this guy. Uh, he's, a, he's this, like, jaded piano player and in New York City. And his his girlfriend moves to California, moves to Hollywood to become a star. And he stays in New York, but he realizes he misses her too much. Um, but because he doesn't have any money, he decides to hitchhike all the way from New York to California. And along the way, he gets picked up by this, this rich guy in a car. And the rich guy accidentally dies. And, you know, th this piano player is worried that everyone's going to think he killed the rich guy. So rather than report the rich guy's death he buries the body in the desert and assumes the rich guy's identity and so you know that alone is is silly enough but for some reason he then decides to pick up a hitchhiker of his own which you'd think if you were you know assuming someone's identity you would avoid other people but he picks up this uh this hot dame who's hitchhiking and as bad luck what has it the the, the woman he picks up hitchhiking happens to know 
the dead man and she's insane and she's like i know you're not really that guy and so she starts blackmailing this wait, wait, guy how does she know this because she happens to just know the guy who died. She's like, I've oh. seen his car before and I know you're not really him. So she ends up blackmailing this guy to doing like her bidding because she's, you know, a, a, uh, a femme fatale, but she's also like insane. So he just keeps getting like further and further in the hole. And it, <laughs> I'm not going to spoil how it ends, but it ends in this incredibly unrealistic, unlikely situation that's also amazingly bleak but uh it's so good it's you know it was made for a really low budget but it doesn't matter just because the performances are so like snappy in that you know 1940s way everyone's talking like really fast like this see and it's just it's it's really enjoyable and like i said it's only 68 minutes and i wish more movies were that short because i could get through them more often so was this a pre-code movie uh i think it was because it it gets away with a lot of stuff that um, yeah that's what i was thinking yeah, so uh, uh, like I said, um, it's actually in the public domain, so you could probably find it on YouTube, but um, it's it's officially on the Criterion channel, so if you have it, uh, I recommend checking this out, yeah. Detour. And you can watch that movie three times instead of seeing Avengers Endgame. Yes! <laughs> uh, Brad, what have you been watching? I've been watching some things. Um, I watched Pet Cemetery because uh, I, I heard it was good. Nobody on the Slash Film uh, team recommended it at all. I haven't heard <laughs> any, anything about how good this movie is from anybody on the Slash Film team. Uh, no, but this um, it was really good. I, I liked and, it. A and lot. you joke because Chris's quote is all over the marketing for Pet Everywhere. Cemetery. Seriously, I've seen that commercial on TV so many times, and I always see Chris's quote. It's so cool. I just want to quickly weigh in here: the Slash Film cast to a Pet Cemetery episode, and they didn't invite me on, and I'm really upset about this. Like, come on. I'm I'm Mr. Pet Cemetery. Why didn't you invite me on Slash Filmcast? All right, now I'm call out David Chen on this. Yeah, I, I don't know what they were thinking. What a bonehead move on their point. All right, continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I got around to seeing Pet Cemetery, uh, and it was it was very good. I, I liked it. Uh, very suspenseful, very twisted. Uh, the, the cast is fantastic. It's just so, gosh, yeah, just just grotesque and grimy. Um, I, I will say that I don't think it necessarily does anything innovative or or bold, but it's it's just a solid remake. I I just I liked it just just for that, you know. Um, I I won't necessarily find myself like talking about it as, um, you know, the the second coming of you know horror or anything like that. But I I do think it's it was a very good remake. Uh, I also watched Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, I just have, I was in my hotel and I had to do work for Star Wars Celebration, and uh, the hotel I was in had HBO Go as one of the options, and Crazy Rich Asians was just added to HBO. So I uh, rewatched it while I was getting some work done, and this this movie is just so good. Uh, it's it's definitely become one of my favorite romantic comedies in recent years. It's just so stylish um, and extremely well done and very funny just just great like i i seriously can't if you haven't seen this movie somehow uh after all this time make sure you watch it on hbo because it's, it's fantastic yes and uh is that all you've been watching no i watched uh the first few episodes of uh netflix's attempt to do their own planet earth documentary series it's called our planet and it's it's your standard uh nature documentary with all those cool close-up shots of uh, rarely seen wild animals and 
cool slow motion shots and just impressive uh, nature landscapes. Uh, it's a very gorgeous series, very entertaining, um, stunning footage, uh, awesome, you know, animals. And like, there's, there's great moments where you just, you get caught up in, uh, you know, just like how, either how cute they are, how cool or gross they are. There's, there's one in, in the, um, like the Arctic episode where there's a little seal cub who is like sitting on the surface of the, like a frozen body of water while the mother is in, in the water uh, looking for food. And there's, there's a polar bear and it's cub who see it and start walking towards it. And you're just, like this, the suspense you feel because the baby seal is so adorable. And you're like, no, 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 go get out of there. Go away. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's really good. The one thing I will say, and I, Someone can correct me if I'm wrong if they if they remember uh, Planet Earth enough, but I don't remember Planet Earth being so um, aggressive about talking about things like how climate change affects nature and these animals and how uh, things like human caused things like deforestation and stuff like that are having an effect. But this one, our planet, is really like making a call to action and telling telling people like how devastating this is and how drastically their uh, ecosystems and environments have, have changed because of the impact we, we've had. Um, so it's, it's, I feel like that will probably rub, uh, you know, people who are jerks about the environment the wrong way. Uh, but it's, it really puts in perspective just like how, how big of an impact this is. And also how just, uh, again, how symbiotic all, a lot of these animals relationships are, especially uh, in the first episode of the series. I'm glad you brought that up, Brad, because the reason I have not watched this yet is because uh, Slash Film contributor Josh Spiegel wrote a rave review of this series for us where he talked about how it is the first major nature documentary series to openly acknowledge global warming and how it's, it makes it a very sobering, <laughs> sometimes upsetting watch, and I just wasn't sure I could deal with that. Um, but did the global warming stuff, like, how hopeful is it? Does, that, does it ultimately feel on the side of it's it's not too late, or does it leave you feeling depressed when the episode is over? Yeah, I mean, it gives you... It, it, it's, yeah, it's definitely not hopeless. Uh, it's def- definitely cautionary, and it's very sad. It's, it's sad to see, and it's very frustrating. Um, but it's not... It's it's more along the lines of, uh, you know, we need to, like, kind of, like, change this before before it's too late, or, or you know, or this will happen, or, you know, this is happening, and unless we, you know, change our you know, blah, blah, blah then, you know, we may never see this again. So it's it's more cautionary than it is, um, I guess, like, than hopeless. But it, 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 either way, it is it is still a little bit upsetting just to see the, the actual impact and, you know, see how it affects a lot, a lot of these creatures. Yeah, and we'll link that review in the show notes as well in the other articles mentioned. H.C., what have you been watching? Uh, so last week I saw Little, which is only the second uh, big-esque Uh, body swap comedy to come out in recent months the first being Shazam and unfortunately this one isn't quite as good as Shazam Uh, it stars Regina Hall, Issa Rae and Marseille Martin Uh, Regina Hall stars as a a tough as nails executive who is just mean and abusive to all her employees who one day gets um, turned into her 13 year old self played by Marseille Martin and um, this is uh, it's it's fine it's fun the cast is actually incredibly talented and great and magnetic but the movie itself just feels very overstuffed and um like that 
like there are three movies in one and yet none of these movies are actually uh totally um resolved in a way that feels very dissatisfying so it's okay um if you want to see a, a good body swap comedy that uh in which a person um a young person or an old person gets turned around watch Shazam instead or even just watch the original big because it's great um and um I also watched uh Tokyo's story on the Criterion channel I also got a Criterion channel uh, subscription I was um emboldened by uh, uh Chris's rave reviews for the Criterion channel uh service and I was really interested in in watching a lot of these movies that I hadn't seen and so the first movie that I saw on my Criterion channel subscription was Tokyo Story which is the film by Yasujiro Ozu and um this was a film that I was very curious about I hadn't seen any Yasujiro Ozu uh films um and I had heard that Tokyo Story was held in higher esteem by a lot of Japanese critics over a lot of, over most Akira Kurosawa films um I'm think there was like this BBC poll that polled the best international like foreign films of all time and while Kurosawa Seven Samurai uh, was at the top um, Japanese critics specifically put Tokyo Story as their number one and I was really curious as to why that was and what the disconnect was um, there's some interesting sort of cultural um, threads going around around there I remember reading that Japanese critics thought of Kurosawa as being sort of uh, sort of uh, leaning into these more Western um, and post-war ideas, uh, whereas Tokyo Story definitely ties more into that sort of Japanese cultural identity. And uh, watching Tokyo Story, I could definitely see why. Uh, it follows an aging couple, an elderly couple rather, who uh, decide to visit Tokyo to visit their three, ch their two children and the widow of one of their children. And um, they find that um, coming from their sleepy seaside town, that the world is just kind of moving rapidly ahead of them and that they can't catch up, and that their children, too, are just kind of changing beyond the recognition. And uh, Tokyo Story is uh, just this beautiful, deeply human, rich tapestry of characters. Uh, it reminds me a lot of this last year's Roma, or rather, I guess you could say Roma reminds me of Tokyo Story because Tokyo Story came out first in uh, 1953. Uh, but it's an incredibly deeply felt film. And afterwards, it made me very emotional and made me want to call my grandma, which is something that I couldn't do because I finished at 1 a.m. But I'm going to call her and and uh, probably, uh, you know, gives you great appreciation for your family and just... Um, life in general so i highly recommend this film it's incredibly beautiful you know hd uh, oh boy peter i was gonna say a lot of the review yeah. a bunch of the reviews for roma actually compared it to tokyo mm. story so that's not you're not the first to make that comparison i, I just want to point out because i feel like ozu does not doesn't come up a lot with modern cinephiles um as much like kira kurosawa does because whereas kurosawa has you know incredibly dynamic almost modern seemingly cinematography Ozu has this way where he plants the camera in one place mm -hmm. and you kind of deceptively don't realize how well staged his shots are until you really go back and watch them again. Because his camera, I don't think it moves ever, if at all. Uh, and in, in the way his his frames find emotion in stillness is really remarkable and something that I feel is undervalued. Did that strike you, HD, when you watch this? Oh, for sure. It definitely found... Um 
the beauty in those moments of silence and those moments in between. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. That's something that I uh, actually enjoy in a lot of Miyazaki films as well. So I appreciate that. And um, it reminds me of uh, Hirokazu Koreda's uh, filmmaking style too, which is incredibly quiet and also uh, I think somewhat reminiscent of Ozu's style. Very cool. What, what else have you been watching? Um, I've been watching the new season of Jane the Virgin. It's actually the final season of this series. It's um, a CW series. I'm going to be the person who's just um, boosting all the CW shows because they're great and underrated and you should watch them even if they're on a network that is supposedly ge geared towards teens. Uh, so this is the um, fifth season of Jane the Virgin, uh, which follows... Uh, and you might have heard of this story in a young woman uh, played by, um, oh, I'm totally forgetting her name, Gina Rodriguez, uh, played by Gina Rodriguez, who is a virgin by choice. She is um, deeply Catholic and decides to save herself from marriage. But one day she gets accidentally artificially inseminated um, and uh, decides to go through with the birth um, despite um, and and is supported by her fiancé as well as the uh, father-to-be who she had actually met before. This is based off of an Argentinian, I think, telenovela and plays a lot into those telenovela tropes, which is, you know, this, this Hispanic Latin soap operas, essentially. But in a way that is incredibly winking and meta and really funny. Um, it's uh, It, for example, is narrated by some and the subtitles is called Sexy uh, Latin Narrator, who comments on a lot of the tropes that arise during this show. And there's almost a magical realism to this show um, in which, like, uh, Jane, uh, for example, imagines all of these elaborate scenarios that never take place but are all in her head. And it's incredibly, like, flighty and fun and a little bit frothy, but it's actually incredibly smart and very good and very emotional. Um, I recommend it. It's a, it's a great... Um, sort of de deconstruction of the rom-com and of the soap opera, soap opera which uh, CW is, has excelled at with uh, shows like Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, Jane the Virgin's a little bit softer than Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but it is equally good. And finally, Ben, what have you been watching? I watched Guava Island, which is the secret movie that Donald, uh, Donald Glover and Rihanna made uh, last year. It just debuted on Amazon Prime this past weekend. And uh, it's 54 minutes long. So, Chris, here's a modern movie for you that is uh, that is under an hour. Um, it's sort of like a uh, I'm trying to describe it as like a like a, it's almost God, there's a term for it. And I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. But it's like a you know how like Pink Floyd made the wall or like um, I don't know, movies like Captain EO almost like where it's like a, a, a concept rock album. Opera? Yeah, kind of like a rock opera. I think that's a, that's probably the term I'm looking for. Um, that's basically what Guava Island is. Donald Glover plays a musician who is living on this um, this island that's sort of it's almost like a fantasy world. It opens with this animated folktale kind of thing. And um, it feels like a time. It, the whole thing, it was shot in Cuba, so it feels like it could have been set during any era. Like nobody's ever on any cell phones or anything like that. And it, it sort of has this timeless feel to it, but it uh, incorporates, it weaves in a bunch of music throughout this story. He plays this guy who is a, a musician on the island who um, is basically like uh, doing the bidding of this overlord who is played by Ananzo 
Anzoni, Anozi, who who played uh, one of the bad guys in Game of Thrones season two. Um, oh, Anonzi. Yeah, non Nonzo Anozi, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's really fascinating because it, it weaves together a bunch of Donald Glover's music. Uh, he performs as Childish Gambino on, you know, that's you guys know the the duality between those guys. But um, so it has like three or four of his songs. Like This Is America is in there. Uh, feels like summer, summertime magic. But then there's also some new music that was created specifically for this movie. So it's, it's sort of like... Um, like a a launch pad like a, a way for a story to be told specifically to incorporate that stuff i'm describing this really terribly but it, I mean, it's would you describe it something similar to um beyonce's lemonade album which was yeah. basically a long like visual um music video yeah i think so it, it had a little bit of that but to me uh lemonade seems more impressionistic and mm-hmm. um and guava island is more narrative like there's a there's an actual story and there's like a lot of dialogue and stuff between a bunch of different characters um the one thing that people may be interested to to learn is that rihanna doesn't sing in the movie um i, I thought it was going to be sort of a joint thing between donald glover and rihanna but this is actually more of just a showcase for Charles Gambino music um, more than anything else. So uh, it's it's this really interesting, like anti-capitalist sort of um, it's not nearly as impressionistic as Lemonade, but it does have these really, really gorgeous shots um, and and a really strong sense of place. I, I would highly recommend watching it. It's only like I said, it's only like 56 minutes or something. So it's on Amazon Prime right now. It's called Guala Island. Um, what else have I been watching? I saw, oh, my wife and I started watching the original Twilight Zone TV show. It's on, all of the original episodes are on Netflix. Actually, that's not true. I, we just, when we were looking through Netflix for a show to find, I suggested Twilight Zone because I think I've only seen probably 10 total episodes of the original series, like just a few of the highlight ones, but I have never really done a deep dive into that show and she was largely unfamiliar with it. Um, but when you go to Netflix and look at it, the fourth season is mysteriously not available. And I guess that's, I was just Googling oh. it really quickly. And I guess there's like some sort of rights issues. Like they changed the length of the episode to an hour for that season. And Rod Serling like wasn't as involved. It was like, I don't know there's a whole thing there. And maybe it, those episodes are available on like CBS all access or something. Cause I know that twilight zone was a CBS show, but You're anyway, not missing much Ben, the hour long from season four are considered to be the worst of the whole series. And a lot okay. of them are shot in video instead of film. So it look bad. And if you have to skip a twilight zone, season four is the one to skip. Okay, good. Yeah. So, you know, that's just going to be one of the shows that we sort of slowly make our way through in the background when, you know, we don't really have anything else to watch. Um, But yeah, I saw the first episode, which I'd seen before. It's called Where Is Everybody? Um, And it's about a guy who appears to be the last person on Earth. And then uh, the second episode is called One for the Angels. And that one stars um, Ed Wynn, who played Uncle Albert in the original Mary Poppins movie. And um I had never seen this one before. And he's like a sort of like a pitch man is what they call him. He's like a street salesman kind of guy. And he meets uh, Mr. Death who comes to tell him that his time is up and he has to do this epic pitch in order to, uh, to, uh, you know, there's there's some complications there. But anyway, uh, the first two episodes, a little cheesy, but uh, but pretty good. I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. And I think, you know, we'll we'll dive more into that as we go along. Uh, and then lastly, I watched The Lady Vanishes, which is from mm. 1938. This is directed by Alfred Hitchcock and it stars Margaret Lockwood and Michael Redgrave. Um, this movie was a lot of fun. I, I think it, it takes a little bit of time to get going. It's like 
the the basic premise is that uh, this woman is uh, this young woman played by Margaret Lockwood meets an older lady who is played by Dame May Whitty named Miss Froy, and she's like a govern a governess and a music teacher. And people are trying to kill her for some reason, and nobody knows why. And they try to shove a a planter onto her head, but they end up hitting the younger woman instead. So she gets on this train with everybody and across the European countryside. And uh, this older woman is there with her, and the younger woman falls asleep. And when she wakes up, the older woman is missing, and everybody on the train like refuses to acknowledge that the older woman was ever there. So it's sort of like a precursor to Gaslight, which is a movie I talked about not too long ago. This came out like six years before that, I think. Um, but the whole movie is this mystery of like, what the hell happened to this old woman? Is she, was she ever really there? Did the the thing that hit the, the younger woman on the head, did it cause her to sort of go nuts? And is she like misremembering this whole situation? Uh, is there like a grand conspiracy going on? It's it's really, really good. Um, has anybody else ever seen The Lady Vanishes? I have. Right. So good. It, go on, she. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's really good. I actually, in college, I took a whole Hitchcock class. And this is one of my favorite early year Hitchcock films. Uh, it has almost like a screwball energy to it, despite um, the structure being more like a paranoid thriller. And I really enjoyed it for that. It was just kind of like, it would be atonal, but it's just really enjoyable to watch. And the MacGuffin at the end is, is pretty funny. Like the fact that, I won't reveal what it is, but it's yeah. just like, it's a little bit like out of left field, but I really enjoyed like how silly it was. Yeah, definitely. I think this is one of Orson Welles' favorite Hitchcock films and is number three, labeled number three in the uh, Criterion Library. So it was one. Yeah, if you've ever seen the um, the 2005 Jodie Foster movie Flight Plan, it's very it's (laughs) that movie is very inspired by The Lady Vanishes. Like I've never seen a Flight Plan, but as soon as I was watching The Lady Vanishes, I was like, wow, a lot of the imagery from this movie is I just remember from the Flight Plan trailer, like somebody writes their name in a window in fog, and and that happens in both movies. And so anyway, I guess Flight Plan is probably not nearly as good, but uh, if you're interested in that kind of concept where like you know uh, is this woman insane or is is she actually the only sane one and there's some sort of uh larger conspiracy going on to to prove her wrong for some reason then um i, I can't imagine you finding very many better options to watch in that specific subgenre than this one you, you know ben there, there's a list to be written of modern day movies that rip off hitchcock classics of flight plan and lady vanishes eagle and eye I mean, yeah, so many have. One of like, we're talking like, like, like flagrantly, like um, one of the Zorro. Oh, movies I didn't mean the eagle. Follows... I meant um, the, what's the other uh, uh, Shia LaBeouf? Um... Disturbia. Oh, Disturbia. Disturbia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what. One of the Zorro movies borrows whole cloth the plot of Notorious. So I it's... mean, you could talk about how Mission Impossible Two is basically Notorious, which yeah. is why I loved it. <laughs> You know, we we should put together that article. That would actually be an interesting read. Um, yeah, let's brainstorm that um, off call. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, we're in the final stretches. Let's talk about what we've been eating uh, this past week on Sunday in anticipation for the season premiere of Game of Thrones. We went to Buffalo Wild Wings because we're on the keto diet and that kind of fits our diet. And uh, But they had Dragonfire Wings, which was promoted as kind of like a Game of Thrones uh themed wing although if you look at any of the advertising for it i don't think game of thrones or hbo i don't think it's official in any way i think it's uh if you look at it like none none of none of it's branded 
Um, so we, we went there. We, we had that and some other wings. But I guess the Dragonfire wings, it's basically it – just it was just there for one day. So I'm not sure if you can get them now. But basically it's a combination of their a- Asian Zing and Blazing. Um, Asian Zing has like some ghost pepper – or I think Blazing has ghost peppers and Asian Zing is a little bit more uh, uh, sweet. Uh, I liked it. I also tried the uh, Thai curry sauce. Um, Buffalo Wild Wings is uh, a great place to eat keto, and I, I enjoy it despite the fact that every time I go there, none of the staff or the people running the place seem to care about any of the customers, and food takes way longer than it should. But aside from that, it's fine. Jacob, uh, what have you found this week? Uh, at your recommendation, I tried uh, uh, Quest Protein Chips and... Quest is well known um, for their low carb, low sugar uh, snacks and protein bars, uh, and I have a love hate thing going on with most Quest products. I think some are delicious and some are terrible, uh, but Quest protein chips are a definite winner. A single bag of chips is uh, four net carbs, and I tried all three of the potato chip flavors: the barbecue, the sour cream and cheddar, and the sour cream and onion. And I think the sour cream and cheddar is my favorite. And they taste a lot like baked Lay's. They have that similar texture, similar flavor. And I feel like I'm eating actual chips, like no reservations, no nothing, you know, changed. I feel they are by far one of the most uh, satisfying uh, high-protein, low-sugar, low-carb snacks I've had in a long time. And I've, every time I feel like there's even a chance of me uh, stumbling off this diet, I find a new product that makes me like feel renewed so thank you uh quest protein chips you are surprisingly delicious yeah all the quest chips are good but i would highly recommend you check out there's a chili lime flavor which kind of emulates those uh i guess you know chips that you dip with salsa that are like lime flavored so if you like those uh it tastes like those it tastes exactly like those um brad what kind of bad stuff have you been eating this week Actually, not too much. I mean, that's not to say that I didn't eat some bad things, but there's nothing worth note just because I was at Star Wars Celebration, and whenever you're at like a convention like that, you only have time to eat bad things, um, even though I did have a couple of good meals from the, the hotel restaurant. Uh, but the one thing that I did find recently that I tried uh, is there's a new f- flavor of Sunkissed Out, Strawberry Lemonade, uh, and it's not actually Strawberry Lemonade. It's Strawberry Lemonade Soda. Um, and I was excited to try this because oh, years ago... Um, this, and this was back when I was actually living in California for a bit. There was a sun-kissed lemonade soda that was around, that it's not around anymore. It's been gone for a while now. And so I was interested to try this because it, I was hoping that it would be similar, similar to that. And it is. It's, it's delicious. It, it very much uh, tastes like the perfect like summer soda. Um, has just the right amount of strawberry lemonade mixed with it, and it's it's very very good. It's not I don't like it as quite as much as the Sun Kiss Lemonade, uh, the regular one that was out so long ago, but it's uh, it's very good. Very cool. And lastly, Jacob, what have you been playing? Uh, first of all, I I'm still playing Baba Is You, the puzzle game we talked about uh, last week, and it's reached a point where uh, my wife and I play together, like sitting on a couch or in bed. We'll Hand, hand the switch back and forth and discuss puzzle solutions and it's reached a point where each each level is a challenge each level is a it's a bona fide brain burning puzzle that like leaves us melted and exhausted but it is so much fun it's one of the best puzzle games i've ever played it's so clever uh but more importantly uh, i've been playing final fantasy 9 which was recently ported to nintendo switch they've uh, been porting a few of the uh playstation era 
Final Fantasy games to the Switch, uh, including far more famous and best-selling Final Fantasy VII. But I'm part of the club that thinks nine was the best game of that era, and that seven is perhaps a bit overrated. And Ooh, that's, <laughs> that's them fighting words. <laughs> seven is still good, but nine's graphics are better, the story is better, the characters are better, the gameplay is better because the character class system is back, and everyone, no, all the characters now have their own specific purposes, and team building matters again. And these new releases, and seven does this too, are great because these are. 80 to 100 hour long games and if you want to revisit the whole game you know that's great but if you're like me and you have like still a massive stack of unplayed games they have modes you can turn on where you can fast forward the game you can move at three times speed so all the fights go faster you can there's a button you can press to refill your health in the fight so you never die wait, wait, so wait, you, wait a second how do you yeah. fast forward a fight i'm confused uh it's, it's, it's a turn-based strategy game so you, you literally input your attack or your command and it does the attack and you and the enemy does the attack back wow. so and so the game lets you go triple speed if you want to so you want, you want all the, like the grinding you're doing on these very long battles goes three times as fast and if yeah, you're old Final school Fantasy yeah. is famous for that turn-based system <laughs> yeah so if you're like me and you just want to revisit the story and revisit like the locations and like relive the experience of a, of a game you love that will have 100 hours to put into it again uh it actually is a really wonderful package for 20 bucks i believe for for final fantasy 9 uh, HT, I know you're the other JRPG fan here. Does the idea of revisiting the classic games and being able to play them at three times the speed uh, appeal to you? That actually really does appeal to me because that solves one of the major problems of Final Fantasy, which is just the fights take so damn long. And um, I actually haven't played all of Final Fantasy IX, so I don't know why I'm, I'm shit-talking you. Um, <laughs> but um, I actually would be interested in doing that. I yeah, I mean, I don't have a Nintendo Switch, but can I afford another console? Maybe. You should buy a Switch HD. Okay. <laughs> okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find links to the Game of Thrones review, the Our Planet review, and also Lincoln's Great Depression in the show notes. Uh, this podcast is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, or Comic-Con hotels to peter at slashfilm.com. That's peter at slashfilm.com. Uh, please leave your name, general geographic location, in case we mention it on the air. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob? I've opened up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian. Do, do uh, they have a Comic-Con lottery uh, chapter? Uh, appropriately, they have a failures section. Okay. <laughs> and I feel like that, that's appropriate for us in the Comic-Con lottery. Uh, for example, uh, Peter, you always have something to fall back on, and it won't be long before you land on it. Uh... Hey, hey, Brad, you started a business on a shoestring, but you took a lacing. Oh, boy. <laughs> If some if a pickpocket went through Chris's pockets, all he would get is exercise. <laughs> uh, HT has a rare gift uh, of instant decision when her firm is heading for bankruptcy. Oh, my firm! I feel like this is a actually a compliment. Uh, and Ben, oh that guy, he's as necessary as a fence around a cemetery. But that is necessary. You don't want someone like, breaking in his. You gotta keep grave robbers out. Yeah, you gotta get <laughs> Lewis Creed from resurrecting his children. Yeah, didn't they see Pet Cemetery? 
and you got to keep the zombies from going out, right? Yeah, it's it's a you need that fence. That's not an insult. Yeah, we know what, we, we fence see, will stop the zombies. You see, so much fence room if we just cremated people, like you know. Yes. <laughs> let's let's pitch that idea. Cremation for all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>